set. Scene one, take ten, marker. Studios of the Modern School of Film. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, an omelette about me. Writer Paul Oster is with us. Robert Malazzo here with you. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film, with you all the time in your back pocket, almost literally, murmurradio.com, M-U-R-M-U-R-radio.com. Social handles at MSF Murmur. You should subscribe to us. Of course, listen to us, but then tell a friend and subscribe, and they tell a friend, and they tell a friend, and so on, and so on. Spiderwebs iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. I love TuneIn Radio. You should know that by now. You can email me, murmurradio at gmail.com, M-U-R-M-U-R radio at gmail.com. Yeah. It's all happening. Welcome to Murmur. Today on the show... The writer Paul Oster. I'm always at odds with calling writers authors because I, I like to use author in a more expansive way. I think creators, authors, you know, we are authors of things. A painter is an author of a painting. A musician is an author of a song. A chef is an author of a poached salmon. <laughs> you see, You see the way I apply it? I'm sure you do. <laughs> so we'll call uh, Paul a writer, which is no small title. You know, writing, I have a lot of writing students, and they're always at odds about when they should call themselves writers. I tell my filmmaking students, you call yourself a filmmaker when you've made a film. Writing may be a little different, because I do think there's a marriage to the outside world and the internal process of writing. Having one other person acknowledge you're a writer is probably the definition of being a writer. That's a different morass for a different day. I have a a new morass for us today. Today's topic is art as autobiography. This is a topic I want to handle (laughs) with care, but I want to address it ongoing. But today I want to look at it in, in the sense of the data of our lives, the events of our lives, the matter of our lives, the rudiments of our lives, how does that translate into art? Can it translate it into art? Should it translate into art? How does it translate into art? You see, this is a really wide uh, paintbrush, and I want to look at a few bristles with you today. Paul Oster, to me, is a perfect guest to have in terms of the literature of autobiography, Paul, and I think he's going to be coy today. That's my prediction. Write this down. Because authors and creators and filmmakers and artists and painters and most people that I like to talk to are coy about how much of them is in their work. For students on the other end of the poll, when I ask my students to create something based on their own life, their first reaction is, my life is so boring. 
which makes me shudder. I don't bore easily, so I, I must get that out of the way. So I think the the banalities of life, you know, let's con- call them banalities. Let's say technically we have so many banal elements of our life. That's not arguable. But when we film that, when we write that, when we paint that, when we draw that, the, the, the banality, by definition, the molecules of the banality have changed. It is no longer the original object. Yes, the anecdote about a tree falling in a forest and making a sound comes into mind, but I'll spare you that. It's almost the existential idea of if you're peeping through a hole and looking into something that has one signature to it, but if I'm observing you peeping, then your signature has now been re-signed or co-signed by me. So I want to talk about using life as a basis of art. I think for creators, I mean, this is run amok. You know, too often I talk about narcissism and I'm going to spare the rod and spoil the topic today. I'm not going to bring narcissism into it. I'm not going to bring in the underbelly of this. I'm going to bring in the top side of it. The top side of it is there is a lot of life that can translate, should translate. Paul is an interesting, Paul Oster, today's guest, is a really sophisticated view of it because Paul... You know, when I think really instantly about Paul, his literature is stunning. Then when I dig a little deeper I or or zoom out a little bit further, I, I think, man, you know, he's written five, I don't know if he calls them memoirs. I think he calls them meditations, actually. Let's use that word today with him. But the Vox Populi and critics will call them memoirs or autobiographies, five of them. That's a lot. It's remarkable to me, not on a sense of vanity, but in the sense of going to that place, going to those zones of of our life <laughs> and 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 digging in uh, Paul's work, the invention of solitude, which is which is his first, let's call it memoir. One of the one of the sort of subdivisions of the book was uh, a portal called Portrait of an Invisible Man, which was Paul writing about the death of his father. And that's pretty audacious as a debut. I don't know if people realize how direct he's been in his first personing because his his books, his literature, his fabricated work, let's call it, has so much of the intricacies and the meta minefields of uh, autobiography and biography. The New York Trilogy, one of my favorites. It's extraordinary. One of the characters is Paul Oster, I think. I'm, it's, although it's written on the page, I'm still not sure if it is Paul Luster. City of Glass. Well, let's back back up. The New York Trilogy. Liter- it wasn't his first literary child, but it was probably the one he's still most known by. And it's broken into three stories. The first story is called City of Glass, and in City of Glass, I can't untangle that in the opening. It's just too fascinating, and I don't want to. I want to give it its due t- entanglement. Um, the first story, City of Glass has a detective who's a private investigator, and there's also Paul Oster who is writing the book, and Paul Oster is the detective as well. There's actually a really cool uh, moment early on. I th- Actually, you know, it's the first line of the damn book. Now that I think about it, uh, hello, is Paul Oster there? That's the first line of the first story of the New York trilogy. So... That's autobiography, right? But what complicates it is are the other gauzes that we apply to it. And we could spend an hour or so talking about meta, which is a is a uh, an- anomaly. <laughs> it's like it's like a blip on the EKG, a deep blip on the EKG of this topic of autobiography. It's something about something. And I was digging into the um uh the definition, the original some of the original definitions of meta. And there's so many early definitions from after to altered to higher uh, beyond is one of the more interesting ones in the sense of a meta object. You're going beyond it. With is another permutation. With is more of an English, an old English permutation. And the word the, the meta wasn't the word that was applied. Typically, in place of meta, the Old English is mid. So midwife, another verb I use a lot, to midwife something. So midwife 
is a sort of meta wife, a meta wife, a surrogate wife. So you can argue that all forms of art are meta us, meta autobiography. Documentaries are autobiographies. Cameras don't turn on themselves. Adobe Premiere does not edit itself. I should know. <laughs> I'm well acquainted with this fact. Uh, so even the most journalistic of enterprises has autobiography in it. We do tend to crucify people who own up to it. So that's the antidote to some of my enthusiasm. Because we are in this world now where, hey, look at this picture I took of my shoelace. Aren't I fascinating? Or, hey, I just straightened my hair. It's been curly for a year. What do you think, guys? I mean, that is that autobiography? Or is that navel-gazing? <laughs> so today I want to talk to Paul Oster about how much of himself goes into the work, how much of the physical literal details, and I have a few physical literal details for Paul about his work that are in the work. I do think readers and fans fixate on that stuff because it's sort of the pre-Easter egg phenomena, you know, the embedded treasure chest within the treasure chest, you know, finding the silver rabbit in the hillside. Remember that book? It's called Masquerade. Masquerade. Masquerade? And it was a picture book, and if you could decode the picture uh, or the pictures, there was a treasure trail. And that treasure trail led to this really beautiful, I believe, silver, I'm visualizing it, silver rabbit. Now, someone did solve it. It was not me. <laughs> it wasn't for lack of trying. I read that Masquerade book a few thousand times. It's actually not a few thousand times, but it's a very slender book. I should have that guy on the show who solved it. Huh. Actually, if memory serves, I'm, I'm diving into the files, memory serves, someone solved it and then there was a uh, there was a controversy because it was presumed that they had heard where it was by someone on the inside and they didn't solve it by looking at the pictures anyway i should have that person on the show if they're still alive <laughs> email me murmurradio at gmail.com i'd love to have that i'd love to have that debate i'd love to have that discussion <laughs> but that's really what it is i mean we want our art to be codified and code for something. And typically, as we get to know the authors of work over time, we want it to be about them. Filmmakers are very apt historically to say this is about me, whether it's Cassavetes or Orson Welles or Fellini. My students are going to laugh when they hear me confront Paul with my favorite film quote, and it's a Fellini quote. And I'll spare you the quote until you listen to the episode, but... The, my students know what I'm talking about. So one could debate that everything is preternaturally a form of autobiography. Does that make everyone's life interesting? Does that make it advisable for everyone to create based on their life? It, it is interesting what bits of autobiography pass through the filter of acceptability in terms of art and which are just really boring and uninteresting. That's a tough one because people in our lives probably – if we're looking at all forms of optimism today, people in our lives probably think we're fascinating. But we want to extend the definition of autobiography beyond fact. I had a dog named Spot. The dog in my book is named Spot. Yes, that's autobiography, but I'm talking about the pure essence of something, witnessing something, witnessing something on the street that then can become part of your book. Now, that is autobiography, not because it's your life, but you witnessed it. You have brought that, that object closer to your source, so it is part of your autobiography, witnessing something on the street, then writing about it, and changing the names to protect the innocent and the not-so-innocent. Then it is now a work of art under glass, and then it is no longer autobiography, or is it? And how much of this talk of autobiographical work, autobiographical source for art, is ex post facto? Well, it all is ex post facto, and some people find it really boring. I, as an educator, find it interesting because I want to prod my students into taking those first leaps on the moon, saying, yes, you already have the spaceship. It's that story you told me. You, are, you already have the dynamism. Your parents met during a peace rally in South Korea. You know, whatever, whatever the molecules and the ten-sided die are, autobiography is a word that needs to be shrunk down. Bad news for you today. I'm guessing with the 
steamer trunk full of autobiographical information and purely authored work that today's guest has in the atmosphere, he's going to be especially coy about it. Because consenting to come on and talk about it does not mean it's going to be easy. <laughs> it's going to be easy to get to or easy to talk about. There's four protagonists in, in his book, 4321, and one of them witnesses a death at a summer camp. And that's very specifically pulled from Paul Auster, a story he told and he tells he was at a camp when he was 14, I believe, early teens, and with his friends, and they were on a hike, and they were stuck in the woods, and there was this electrical storm, and uh, one of the campers was struck by lightning, and he was killed right there. So that it's not always about putting that event into the work to make it autobiography. It's, it's the echo of that event. He could be trying to solve that. <laughs> So autobiography is not always driven by narcissism. It's sometimes driven by our need to figure things out, to to sleuth, detectives, Kafka, figure things out, (laughs) circularity. Why am I here? Why am I being arrested? Paul seems to have a really interesting relationship to noir as a film lover and also detectives as, as characters in his books. I also know he's friends with Vim Vendors, who I've had the pleasure of talking to and have had in my series, The Modern School Film, and Vim is all about that puzzle piecing of blurring, you know, whether it's movies about Nicholas Ray or Peter Falk showing up in Wings of Desire. Now, again, meta, autobiography. I think sometimes these sort of topics, my fear is that I sound critical, and I'm not. I want to hear from him what it sounds like when the topic of autobiography in his work is addressed. That's really what I'm going for today. Rather than validation, which I'll probably never get, I want to hear his reaction. So I'm almost playing lawyer today. Get, get, get the witnesses' answers into the oxygen and let the jury, you, decide. Today on Murmur, Paul Auster. Now this. Do I have an original thought in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were happier, my hair wouldn't be falling out. Life is short. I need to make the most of it. Today's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm a walking cliche. I really need to go to the doctor, have my leg checked. There's something wrong. A bump. The dentist called again. I'm way overdue. If I stopped putting things off, I would be happier. All I do is sit on my fat ass. If my ass wasn't fat, I would be happier. I wouldn't have to wear these shirts with the tails out all the time. Like that's fooling anyone. Fat ass. I should start jogging again. Five miles a day. Really do it this time. Maybe rock climbing. I need to turn my life around. What do I need to do? I need to fall in love. I need to have a girlfriend. I need to read more. Improve myself. What if I learned Russian or something? Or took up an instrument? I could speak Chinese. I'd be the screenwriter who speaks Chinese. And plays the oboe. That would be cool. I should get my hair cut short. Stop trying to fool myself and everyone else and think I have a full head of hair. How pathetic is that? Just be real. Confident. Isn't that what women are attracted to? Men don't have to be attractive. But that's not true. Especially these days. Almost as much pressure on men as there is on women these days. Why should I be made to feel I have to apologize for my existence? Maybe it's my brain chemistry. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Bad chemistry. All my problems and anxiety can be reduced to a chemical imbalance or some kind of misfiring synapses. I need to get help for that. But I'll still be ugly, though. Nothing's going to change that. Okay, thank you, thank you. We have a long three days ahead. Yes. Sir, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, They struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved. More a reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir. The real fucking world. First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. 
People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. One day you're gonna have to face the deep, dark truth from mirror. And it's gonna tell you things that I still love you too much to say. The sky was just a purple bruise, the ground was iron. And you fell all around the town until you looked the same. Same eyes, same lips, same life, and your tongue trips. Deep dark, deep dark truthful mirror. Deep dark, deep dark truthful mirror. The stripping puppet on a liquid stick gets into it. Pretty thick A butterfly drinks a turtle's tears But how do you know he really needs it? As a butterfly feeds on a dead monkey's hand Jesus wept, he felt abandoned You're spellbound, baby, there's no doubt in that Did you ever see her stare like a Persian cat? Same eyes, the same lips, the same life. The director Mike Nichols once said to me, a movie is about something and about something else. And that was a troubled statement to an addled young mind such as myself because I never saw a movie the same way, nor did I ever read a book the same way. And someone who knows a thing or two about a thing or two, books and movies, he started writing, these are his words, he started writing truly dreadful poems when he was nine or ten and then graduated to short stories at, at, at the ripe age of 11 or 12 uh, over 30 works later and 50 years of creating art, uh, we have one of the great masters of form. He's been thinking of leaving New York for 35 years now. He has me beat. Please welcome to discuss things of a meta and a metaphoric nature, Mr. Paul Oster. Hello. Paul, welcome to the show. It's an honor to speak with you, my friend. Thank you. I had an echo the first sentence, but now it seems to have gone away. I, I live with that echo my whole life. Um, it's, a, it's a privilege to speak with you, Paul. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Happy to be with you. And, and belated happy birthday. Do you, I don't count anymore. Do you still count these things? It, um, it wasn't a, an occasion for big celebration or big depression. It was just simply another day. But still, my God, how can one get to be so old? It's not possible. I just no, want to clear I, up know, two things uh, from your uh, question. First of all, I never said I was preparing to leave New York. Uh, that was Lou Reed yes. in a movie I co-directed, Blue in the Face. Yes. And Lou made that joke, which was very funny. And um, uh, I happened to be the person interviewing him off camera. But no, I've never thought that. I, I want to be in New York. I've stuck it out all these years and have no plan to leave, I can assure you. Then you bring up Mike Nichols, uh, which is very funny to me because I only met him once. Yeah. But uh, before I met him, <laughs> it seemed that he was uh, gung-ho uh, to make a film adaptation of one of my novels, Oracle Night. Uh -huh. And he called my agent and said that uh, they were going to start drawing up the papers immediately. They were so excited 
But it seems that <laughs> he hadn't quite finished the book. And when he got to the end, he found it so dark and depressing that he abandoned the idea of, of putting it on film, which is maybe just as well. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think dark is the reason to do it, but that's you know a different story for a different day. It's funny. Not well, to, he was, he was uh, operating in a Hollywood that doesn't like such things. <laughs> uh, it's funny not to get too much into the, into the lit cinema of it all yet, but uh, we had Hampton Fancher recently on the show, and Hampton said that Ridley Scott has never read the original Philip K. Dick, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? In all these years, I found that interesting. Does that is that chafing at all in the sense if if you're working with uh, if you're hybridizing one of your works or working with a filmmaker or a producer, isn't that like uh, ground zero? Read the damn book. I would think so. I mean, I've never had that experience. People have approached me uh, over the years to to make film adaptations of my books, but uh, always based on having read the book first. <laughs> I don't see how you can start any other way. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm retired. I'm not in the movies anymore. I just like to watch them. Your, your IQ just shot up, uh, if, if that was even possible, with that statement. And I, and I want to pick at your brain in, in terms of cinema, because you're, you're, you're someone who has gone into the, into the breach of it, uh, as you have in literature. But I, you know, I want to fixate on this Mike Nichols thing for a little bit and, and talk to you about... It's funny, I, right, after, um, right before I met Mike, I was working for Dave Mamet, and Mamet said something to me about Mike, and he said, you know, before you meet Mike, be prepared. My New York is coming out. Be prepared because Mike speaks in what he calls quotational speech. It's speech as if someone is talking. And I don't know if you ever got to hear Mike Nichols or or in general or specific, but that was a curious way of describing someone's speech, quotational speech. What do you make of it? I talked to Nichols for maybe uh, two minutes. Um, we met at a at a party, a small party, and he turned and looked and saw me, and he said, <laughs> "Oh, so you're real, are you?" <laughs> that was, I thought, a rather nice thing to say. <laughs> but 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 so only one of my novels has ever been made into a film, *The Music of Chance*, a book that came out, I think, in 1990, and in 1992 or so, it was made into a feature film directed by someone named Philip Haas, and it had, had a nice cast of yeah. Mandy Patinkin, Mandy Patinkin right. and James Spader and Charles Durning and Joel Gray. It was, it was a, an okay film. I wasn't unhappy with the results, but there were, for reasons I don't understand, that particular book caused a lot of interest among filmmakers. And one producer I talked to told me this, and he had been very successful. He'd done a number of very highly thought of films in the past, he said, I love this book, yeah, with the exaggeration of a Hollywood producer. Nobody loves this book more than I do. <laughs> yes. And he said, but there's one thing I, I want to talk to you about. In this story, you have these two very interesting characters, Flower and Stone. And uh, they're there for a while, and then they disappear. They go away. And I think we should bring them back for the movie. And I said, but we can't do that. Uh, that's not how the story works. They leave, and their absence is very important for the rest of what happens. He said, I know, I understand that, but you're the author, and you can do anything you want. And I said, no, actually, I can't do anything I want. I have to obey what my characters are telling me and what the demands of the story are, and I'm not at liberty to, to change it. And so he didn't become the producer of the film, <laughs> needless to say. But I think many people have this idea that a writer is just a, a puppet master and he, and he just manipulates and manipulates. And that's not how novels are written at all. They come from another space inside you and it's deep and it's unconscious and uh, it grows uh, inside you almost with your, without your being aware of it. And that's, the power of literature. 
You know, ta- we're talking, um, it's interesting, your, your point is fascinating. I was thinking of pilot or co-pilot, and I've heard writers say, as, you, as you're saying, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you know, I'm listening to the character, I'm following the character. Uh, I've, I've heard filmmakers say it, I've heard screenwriters say it, I've heard authors say it. Then I've heard, you know, there are the, the great, the, the other, the sort of dramaturgical mappers, you know, where you are in front of the character, you know, so this cat and mouse, are, are both sides legitimate? Well, theoretically, I mean, there are writers who, I know for a fact, sit down and write a map of the book before they start. They do an outline in great detail, and then they start all over again and fill in all the details. I don't, I can't work that way. Mm. Um, For me, writing is a great adventure. You know, you thrash out into the unknown. I rarely have any fixed idea of what I'm up to. And I'm, I'm pretty much improvising day by day, finding it as I go along. And that, that's the way I work. But I'm not saying that everyone has to work that way. It's just the only way I can do it. Mm. Uh, speaking with Paul Osser, I just want to look at this idea of, you know, stuff about stuff and wondering, can we ever get back to the original stuff? It's funny, movies have a short history. I tell my students that. They're, they're shocked. Uh, you know, I, I tell them they've seen more movies relative to the number of movies that exist than they've heard songs or read poems. Of course. Um, you know, of course. it's a troubling thing, right? We do live as, a, as human beings, this sort of compare and despair idea. What's the recommendation? What, what is the prescription in the sense of how do we see things for what they are, not for what they are not. I think you have to educate yourself. You have to know a lot. You have to uh, see a lot of films or read a lot of books before you can even begin to assess them. What astonishes me is that, as you say, film history is very short. It effectively begins in around 1895. Uh, The the technology, but real films weren't, weren't being produced until the 20th century. And yet, uh, even though it's a finite number of works, uh, most young people that I run into aren't familiar with the movie past. I heard not long ago, uh, someone referred to Pulp Fiction as an old movie. (laughs) And uh, it made me laugh, I have to say, it made me laugh. Uh, It seems to me that that movie came out about 27 minutes ago, and uh, it's very recent. (laughs) Yeah, all right, so what is it? 10 years old, 20 years old, I have no idea. 95, 94, 95, yeah, somewhere around there, yeah. They don't even like to look at black and white films. Um, And so they're cutting themselves off from understanding what movies can be. And this applies not just to people who like to watch films, but to people wanting to become filmmakers. And uh, I've, I've had similar stories told to me about young art students who don't know the history of art and writers who don't know the history of literature. And I think it's disturbing. Yes, you have to be in the position to be able to throw it all away uh, eventually, but you have to know it. You have to know it. You have to be able to um, understand that what you're doing maybe is not so original. And maybe someone did it 2,000 years ago had that same thought about how to tell a story that you have now. Without that sense of history, I think it's possible to become arrogant and stupid and uh, blind. And uh, good artists are none of those things. Uh, here, here. Is it fair to say learn it, love it, then forget it? Is that is that the bumper sticker for this kind of well, thing? Well, I think so. I mean, at one point in my novel... Um, one of my four identical boys is uh, an aspiring novelist, and um, his mother has remarried, and his stepfather's brother, who's a music critic and a rather uh, erudite fellow, gives him this advice. He said, learn everything you can, read everything you can, and then uh, try to forget it. And what you can't forget will form the foundation of your work. I love that. Um, you know, thinking about you and thinking about you discussing your your life, uh, I want to talk about some of the things that you seem to carry with you. You've written um, more than one memoir. Actually, five. Five nonfiction autobiographical books in total. 
Well, it's funny. I've heard you refer to them also as meditations. Well, they're not really autobiographies, and they're not really memoirs. I don't know what to call them. They're (laughs) they're books that approach certain aspects of what it means to be alive Mm -hmm. from different points uh, of view. And um, I use myself as the guinea pig, so to speak, as the subject, only because I know my own story better than any other. But I'm not interested in myself. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm just there as a as a rat in a laboratory uh as i try to think about humanity in general well can can i be cute with you for a second i I also tell my filmmaking students that every film is a documentary you know you can't watch mccabe and mrs miller and not think about the fact that uh altman asked the actors to bring their clothes to the set to wear (laughs) Would, Mm -hmm. would you is it too cute by half to say books or that as well. Would would you concede any part of the idea that every book has a form of reality in it, or is a reference for reality? I don't know. I don't know. That's a very hard question. I'm not. I'm not even sure I understand it. <laughs> Me neither. But, but this, <laughs> I was hoping but you this would. But this Altman thing is okay. This is a very important point. Okay. You give me this piece of information, which I've never known, mm. that the actors brought their own wardrobe to the set. Um, but that doesn't matter. That's just a means to an end. It's a method. What matters only is what you see on the screen, um, and you have to judge the work as itself, and uh, the biography of the creator is of no importance, really. Uh, It might become interesting if you fall in love with the work, and you might want to know more. For example, uh, when I was writing uh, the novel Leviathan many years ago, I decided, uh, just um, because I wanted to, to set part of it in the very room in which I was writing the book Mm -hmm. in Vermont. My family and I were up in Vermont for the summer. And I was working in this funky, tumble-down, broken shack. And I used that room and the green table I was working on in the book uh, just to see if it would make things more immediate or not. Now, this was for my benefit, and it has nothing to do with what the reader sees on the page. And why would the reader care about this? It was something I did as a little challenge within the work itself but in itself it means nothing i think the the part of it that that brings the reader into the curiosity of that is aspiration i i could only imagine that people think writing a book is easy i don't know what you know i don't know where that comes from but in the sense that (laughs) you know people have this inadvertent sense that they're fascinating and when you say something like that it verifies in them that they could be fascinating too. There's permutations of this spirit too. There's homage. There's something a word you use talking about four three two one that there are I love the word you use. There are echoes of your own life in four three two one. That's a beautiful uh, word to use. But in Leviathan, um, if memory serves both of us here, I'm not sure, Peter, the protagonist, meets Iris. On February 23, 1981, can you yes. tell our listeners what February 23, 1981 is in your life? Well, that's a good question. That was the day I met Siri Hustvet. Who's that? Who uh, <laughs> has been my wife for yes. all these years. Right. We met that day, right. that evening, and we've been together ever since. Um, it was uh, an explosive encounter, and um, we, we really haven't been apart. In Siri's first novel, which I think maybe had been published at that point, or not yet quite published around the time of Leviathan. She inverted the letters of her name to form the protagonist, Iris, Siri spelled backwards. Mm. Um, And I took my, and and that character in the, in Siri's book is single. She's had a broken love affair, and at the end she's, she's alone, and I decided that I was going to make a transfictional marriage and have my character, Peter Aaron, marry her. So Iris in the novel Leviathan is really Ciri's fictitious character, not Ciri herself. 
<laughs> Interesting. Uh, we're speaking with Paul Oster. Let me bring one other uh, new neuroses to the table here. I was thinking of, uh, as if we didn't have enough, you and I, or at least I'm bringing mine. Um, Robert McCrum, someone who you know uh, very yes. well, was a great champion of your work. Um, he relayed an interesting story. I'm going to relay the story in brief, and I want you to reflect on it a little bit. Uh, this is from Robert. He said, Paul brings a lot of his life into his fiction. And then he relayed a story about going to Vermont with you and Siri and your daughter. And you drove to, um, you were driving to Vermont and you decided to have a dinner and you bought some lobsters, champagne, mm -hmm. cake mm -hmm. for Sophie. And uh, then he said, he remarked that uh, the, the cashier thought, wow, this is a strange inventory of food. Well, we bought diapers. You see, Sophie was just a little <laughs> infant and we had pampers, yes. champagne and lobster and the, <laughs> and the chocolate cake. Wow. And the, uh, the girl at the checkout counter was pretty mystified because here is, you know, a, a woman and two men. <laughs> and it was, she didn't know what was going That's on. That's a party. That's a real party. Um, and, but but uh, Robert's end of the anecdote was he was very, this is Robert, was very amused to see the same feast recreated in the music of chants. Yeah. I was writing the book then. Yeah. And um, uh, the very next day when I went back to work, uh, I had to write the scene of, you know, someone coming to visit the trailer where the two men are working, building the wall. And uh, uh, I used the, the, the menu from the previous night in the novel. And this is the kind of thing you have to be open to. Um, it was all very immediate. I remembered it vividly. It had only been a few hours earlier. And I decided I wanted to use it. Mm. Um, and that's what I mean by the way novels, the way, at least the way I write them, are often improvised, at least in part. And uh, you have to try to keep yourself open to what the world is telling you at any given moment. Um, it's not a matter of, for me, uh, locking myself in a room 24 hours a day and just living in that other world of the fiction but being in the world and out of the world at the same time. Well, th then I'm going to ask you a really dangerous question because your answer is going to be dangerous to young writers listening to this. Are the lives of young writers more or less interesting than they think? Oh, I don't think you can make any generalizations at all. I'm sure um, some are pretty dull, some are very exciting. Um, <laughs> and I think that's always been the case. Some of them are, the, are kind of dull people, and yet they're brilliant at what they do. Others are wild and eccentric, and they can be brilliant too, but they can just as easily be stupid and untalented. And um, and same holds true for uh, the T.S. Eliot's of this world with their button-down suits and jobs and banks. Um, there are just no rules. Um, Siri repeats this again and again, quoting Goya. There are no rules in art. And I think that's the one thing every young artist should know. There yeah, are no that. rules. There's a lot of geniuses in that Brooklyn brownstone, by the by. Uh, speaking with Paul Oster, just a couple more thoughts to throw at you. You know, what, this is something I've been wanting to ask you because I, I'm asked this a lot. Um, and let's put it into film land because you made the unfortunate uh, uh, decision to actually make a film. Talk about work about artists. You know, I think audiences either find this stuff really banal or really interesting. And let's locate it in movies, movies about writers. Do you like movies about writers? Well, they tend not to be that interesting because it's very difficult to capture the inwardness of the writing experience mm. on a two-dimensional flat screen. It just It's very hard to do. There's one great film though one film that i i love um and it's it's it was made in 1966 by a man who was a friend of mine for years is now dead henning carlson a danish film director and he made an adaptation of knut hamsen's novel hunger uh, from 1890 yes. that's yeah. when the book was written yeah. and henning did a masterful adaptation and i've never seen a film so vividly capture the inwardness of, of a writer's life is that is that film. I recommend it to everybody. The actor, uh, Per Oskarsson, Swedish, uh, won the Cannes Film Festival for Best Performance, and it's it's unforgettable. I, I've rarely seen a performance of this caliber. It's an important answer because this is a this is a kind of uh, a red herring that that you as a writer who's living this drama. Yeah. 
And it's funny because Hunger, the novel, is some, a book I, I, I cared about a great deal. And when I, I did one year of graduate work at Columbia after I got my BA there, and my um, master's paper was called The Art of Hunger, and it begins with a long section on the Humpson novel. So, mm. And I was 22 years old when I did that. And uh, so it's a book I've cared about for a long, long time. Well, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking, sitting here thinking about movies like In a Lonely Place. I'm thinking about uh, Adaptation. I'm thinking about Barton Frank. But then I'm thinking those are about screenwriters and it's a different, it's a different meditation. You know, yes, it's a different yes, pathology yes. because those pathologies, aside from Adaptation, those, uh, Barton Fink is really also about the business, how the business inflects, you yes. know. Um, is well, that... they're both great films. I like them both enormously. But uh, they don't really capture the writing experience so much as they, as you say, the the weirdness of the worlds those those two screenwriters are traveling in. Well, talk about hunger for a second, just as a coda. Does that film do it with words? Does it do it with images? Because, as you're saying, it's attempting to ca- capture something ephemeral and arguably un- uncapturable. A bull. What does it? No, do it does it with images. Mm. It's all with images. And uh, Henning told me an amazing story. You know, Humpson's great hero as a writer was Dostoevsky. And, um, Crime and he, Punishment, I know, is uh, one of your touchstones. Um, well, it was one of the first great books that I, I could respond to, and, and it changed my life. But, but uh, Humpson uh, uh, had a photograph of Dostoevsky on the wall of his study. And Henning told me that the first days of the uh, production were not going well. There was a kind of... Um, uh, lack of organization, lack of cohesion in, in what everyone was doing. And then he got the bright idea to send a, one of the assistants all the way up into the country, an hours-long drive to Humpson's country house, and take the Dostoevsky photograph and bring it to the set. And he did it. And then when Henning put it on the wall of the newspaper office where the hero was trying to sell articles from time to time, there's Dostoevsky, and he said it galvanized everyone in the cast and on the, in the crew, and and the whole production came together because of that photograph. Wow! I don't know why, but it did. What do you what do you make of totems in that way? I was you're, as you're saying the story, I'm drinking it in, and I'm also thinking of Paul Schrader. I don't know if you've heard Paul recount that he wrote um, Taxi Driver, talking about crime and punishment. Dostoevsky, he wrote Taxi Driver with a gun sitting next to his typewriter. What do you, I mean, no, I, I, I didn't know that. I know him a little bit too, but he never told me that story. Well, it's funny. You know, I always tell tell my filmmaking students when you hear a filmmaker tell a story, it's all true and it's all false, and it doesn't make any difference. It's, no, just thinking in the case of Paul Schrader, uh, you know, the gun in the film becomes a very important moment. It's right towards the end when all hell breaks loose. Maybe he had it there just to remind himself where he was going with the story. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm just mm-hmm. guessing. In, in our last beats with you, you uh, you became instantly my artistic hero. Uh, you t- you were talk- Someone had asked you, I believe, about experimentation. You you said uh, gloriously. I thought you said I never experiment with anything in my books. Experimentation means you don't know what you're doing. And it was I'm, I was really relieved that you said that. I, one of my least favorite terms in the galaxy. As, as far as words extend, is experimental filmmaker. I always tell my students, every film is an experiment. If you want to look at what you're saying in reverse and use it proactively, if you knew what was going to happen, if we call an experiment, you know, testing with the unknown, we don't, you know, filmmakers don't know. It's literally science fiction. Can, can you stretch this out a little bit in terms of experimentation, why that's maybe a four-letter word to a creator? Well, it does suggest that you don't know what you're doing. And um, um, now, in many ways, I don't know what I'm doing in the sense that I don't know where the story's going all the time. And I don't know what what's bubbling up inside me and what's going to bubble up the next day. But I'm talking about um, uh, just the, um, how shall I put it, the control of the writing and and one's mastery over the medium that you're working in, uh, you have to train yourself and it takes years. Uh, you know, I think, um, 
There are rare exceptions when a young person is able to produce something magnificent. But in fiction, it doesn't happen very often. It's a question of years, years of, of failing, years of writing things that don't satisfy you, years of pushing and pushing and going deeper into yourself. But these are the things you don't publish. And right. so, right. yeah, you can experiment if you're, if you're testing things out and you're 18 or 20 years old. Of course, of course, because you can't be a master yet. You're still a novice. But I'm talking about someone who has had all those years of apprenticeship behind him or her and is uh, entering into the fullness of the work he or she is going to produce, then you're not experimenting anymore. Joyce was not an experimental writer. He was an avant-garde writer. He was pushing the envelope, but he damn well knew what he was doing. Well, it's funny, Laurie. All the way through. You were speaking of Lou Reed, and Laurie Anderson is is going to be on the show, and we're going to talk about the state of avant-garde because I love that we don't use that term anymore, uh, and it's unfortunate. No, that's true. It's unfortunate because we think of uh, you know the our, our darker artistic demons, which is unfortunate that we've we've you know experimentation feels tepid, avant-garde feels really sharp and laser-like. I wish we could get back to that place. I want to wrap this around and end a little bit where we started. One of your artistic soul, soulmates and and friends, frankly, Vim Vendors, told me something really interesting. It's always stuck with me about movies, and I want to get your reflection as it pertains to literature. I'm paraphrasing just a bit, but Vim said that it's impossible to put a metaphor in a movie because a movie is a metaphor. And that, again, kind of blew uh, one of the lobes of my brain because it makes too much sense when we think of (laughs) what movies are. You know, movies are a surrogate of sorts. They're a kind of uh, heightened blah, blah, blah. What do you you reason that in terms of literature? And is that an insult? Is that a a, a reductive way to look at film and cinema with all due respect to Vim? Um, Do you think literature is 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 an inveterate metaphor for, uh, for better or for worse? No, I don't really think so. And I, I think one of the great differences between books and films is that a film is always being told in the present tense. And even when you have a flashback, it's the present tense. Um, you can't play with time in the same way that you can in, in a novel. Um, um, for me, I... I as you know, I love movies and I, I care about them deeply. But I think in the long run, uh, 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 books are, generally speaking, uh, a much deeper, more all-encompassing experience because you live them in three dimensions, not two. Mm-hmm. And you can smell and taste and feel things in ways you can't quite in, in films. Um Plus, the intricacies of the stories you're able to tell in novels are not really accessible to movie makers. The movie is generally uh, a short story, at most a novella. Anytime you try to take on a longer form, it gets it gets bogged down in the sheer massiveness of its intentions. It's, it's, Whereas a book yeah. could be 60 pages or or. 600 or 2,000 pages. Much more yeah. flexible. It's a great point. It's something Fellini talked about a lot, that novellas are optimal source materials for cinema. Because, and and pardon me for, for uh, theorizing this way, it's not that they're incomplete. It's just that they're they're kind of sketched differently. They're, they're, there's a different contract between the reader and the writer. Uh, there's a different metronome. So he actually thought uh, novellas were great source material if we're, if we're looking at the cannibalization. Two quick questions that I promise will let you go, and then I want you to clear one thing up. Uh, it's funny, I was thinking okay. about something about Godard, uh, something Jean-Luc Godard said about cinema and movies. He was talking about the difference between the new, how the Nouvelle Vague saw movies and how most people saw movies. He said, for most people, life is a reference for movies, meaning when they go to the movies, they think of their life. And he said, for us, movies were a reference for life meaning they walked around mm-hmm. and saw somebody and thought, oh, that's like a movie. Have you had that uh, sort of re- recidivism in your own life? Have you th- brought literature into your life? Have you ever walked down the street and, and visualized or, or brought 
information from, of a literary kind into your life. Well, I think so. But I think with the Nouvelle Vague, just to get yeah, to that please, for a second, please. you have to remember that all these young people, and they were mostly men, um, uh, were critics first. Yes, and they were yes. uh, maniac movie watchers. Um, they lived and died for movies. And uh, then they decided they wanted to start making them. It's funny, you know, talking about critics, Vim Vendors, our friend, your friend, your soulmate, was a critic as well, started as a film critic. Uh, uh, well, briefly, yeah, briefly. did some yes, film criticism. True. In yes, fact, yes. he told me that when he was, um, you know, we overlapped in Paris, but we, of course, didn't know each other then. <laughs> and he said he was going to the Cinematheque every day yes. and watching several films a day. And uh, just in order to keep everything straight in his mind, he would go home afterwards and write down descriptions of the films he had seen. And these led to some uh, short articles that he started writing. He was, you know, in his early 20s then. And that's how he got into film criticism. (laughs) But I think always with the idea of becoming a filmmaker. Well, it's interesting. The road's not taken and taken because you, if memory serves, were going to Paris at some point to maybe... Do some film study, correct? With a, with I a, thought of with it. a jaundiced eye. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I, I got the forms, and they were so daunting. I, I never bothered to fill them out. Yes. Vim did fill out the forms, and he got rejected from that school. Huh. Right. <laughs> if one can only laugh. Now right, exactly. Well, I can't think of too many uh, uh, similar examples in literature where critics, uh, people start out as critics and then become novelists. It doesn't seem it to doesn't work that way. It doesn't seem to work. I know John Lahr has tried some stuff, but I think he's tried some playwriting. It's it's a different uh, vibration. I, I, I agree. Why is that so? Why is that so, do you think? Is it a different creature that's drawn to literature? I don't know. It's, I, I think it's because ultimately movies are mechanical, and um, and uh, there are just so many elements you can put in whereas uh, the elements in a novel are infinite, I think. I mean, literally infinite. And so they just have different tonalities, both of them. And I like your uh, use of the word metronome. I think that's a very good uh, term to use about pace because timing is all in any art. And, um, and, and different works of art have different metronomes, and that's something I'm not going to forget. So well, thank you for giving me that. Well, I think you've kind of pathologically sent it to me, because reading so much of your thoughts about stuff, you use the word music a lot. It's not just titular. You use music a lot. So I'm, I'm going to return the thank you and end with one last Fellini question. He was once asked by a critic, ho-ho, uh, what are your movies about? You know, a small question. What are your, Mr. Fellini, what are your films about? And Fellini, rather than say, I don't know, he actually answered, and I thought it was curious. He said, my movies are about myself freed. What do you think about that? That's interesting. I I think maybe that would be uh, an answer that any artist in any field would would be able to say without any embarrassment, Mm -hmm. because perhaps he's put his finger on it. It's true. I mean, we're all writing or painting or uh, composing out of ourselves. I mean, obviously, that's 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 a fact. Um, but how what we do with it, you see, is is again various. I mean, there's no there are no rules, and the results are different from one artist to the other. But the starting point is always the self. No question about it. The last part of the Fellini before we say goodbye to the great uh, Paul Auster. My students are uh, metaphysically meta, metaphysically laughing somewhere when I tell you my favorite film quote. If I had to make a movie about an omelet, Fellini said, it would still be about me. If you had to write a book about an omelet, would it still be about you? No, because I don't write about myself. Uh, but it would have my fingerprints all over it. And I would tell it in a way that perhaps only I could tell it. Mm-hmm. Because I am so far down the road in this life of writing that um, uh, I do what I do and I... I I'm always trying to change. I'm always looking for other approaches, but 
ultimately everything bears your your fingerprint and you can't get away from that i don't know whether it's your hybridized uh jersey brooklyn new york uh underpinnings but you speak of your work as i would assume you would almost like a plumber and i mean that in the best possible way i think <laughs> you know when you're in when you're in the eye of the storm there is no storm by definition and i want to thank well, you well listen Yes. Listen, when the pipes are leaking, you don't want to call a novelist, do you? You really need the plumber to come in and fix it. Note to self, never call an award-winning author to fix your pipes. But uh, but I will call on you the next time I'm in Park Slope because I'd love to treat you to coffee and do this in person. It would be only a pleasure. And I wish you nothing but the best, Paul, this year and, and all the days beyond. Uh, I'd be delighted. I enjoyed it a lot. And please give my best to Lori when you talk to her, okay? Absolutely. Take care, uh, Paul. Be well, and we'll catch up with you again soon. All right. Take good care of yourself. Be okay. Well. Bye-bye. Bye. I told you he was going to be coy, but coy in the most enlightening way And this is a topic, autobiography, biography, putting our own rudiments, putting our own cosmology in a work that we really discuss every week. (laughs) But this was a direct hit on it. One direct hit for man, one small direct hit for mankind, basically to be continued. I want to thank Paul Oster for being here with us today. I want to thank you for being here with us today. But you can be with us here every day. MurmurRadio.com. See how that works? <laughs> iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Subscribe, download, and check us out every week. Social handles, follow us on the social highway at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. Follow, follow, follow. And if you did something interesting today, trust yourself. Go write it down. See ya.